Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, Happy Columbus Day, Ken. Same to you. Listeners are probably not hearing this on Monday, but we are taping this on Monday, October 9. Uh, And why don't we start with Donald Trump's trial in New York, the civil trial related to various Trumps and various Trump entities accusing them of civil fraud. This is the trial brought by the New York Attorney General. And this is the first case in which we've seen a gag order imposed on Donald Trump. Uh, There have been protective orders which govern what you may do with material that is produced to you in discovery. Uh, This is the first broader gag order, basically restricting certain topics uh, that Donald Trump is not supposed to talk about. But even this is relatively narrow. It's uh, do not attack my staff is the order from the judge. Well, exactly. Donald Trump in this case has been very vigorously attacking in public the judge, uh, Arthur Engeron, and uh, the attorney general and all sorts of other people, but he crossed a red line when he attacked the judge's law clerk, uh, which any attorney would tell you attacking court staff is a absolutely insane thing to do. It's the best way to make sure everything starts to go badly for you just because of the things those court staff can do. And it very much antagonizes the judge. What happened here was uh, one of Trump's lawyers made some snide remark about this law clerk who was assisting the judge in court. And this hit the news. Uh, Trump's people online started investigating her, found her Instagram account, and found a picture of her at some political event standing next to Chuck Schumer. And Trump turned this into a truth social post, calling her Schumer's girlfriend, notwithstanding there was no evidence that There was anything more than these two people standing next to each other in a picture once and saying that she's running the case against me. It's disgraceful. The case should be dismissed and linking this poor woman's Instagram account. So, uh, you know, there was a a predictable surge of attacks and threats uh, to this young woman. And the judge did not take it well. He first ordered Trump to take down the Truth Social post. And then he issued, like you said, the first gag order Trump has gotten, basically just saying, don't attack my courtroom staff. Josh, this is really just remarkable. One of the earliest things you learn as a lawyer, uh, the received Mm -hmm. wisdom from every other lawyer is be nice and suck up to courtroom staff, court reporters, courtroom clerks, law clerks, secretaries, anything else. Do not antagonize them. They hold disproportionate Mm -hmm. power. Uh, They can make your life easier or they can make it horribly, horribly harder. So this is just a terrific blunder uh, of a thing to do. He's made the judge mad. He's gotten this gag order and it's only going to get worse from there. When we've talked about gag orders in the past, we've talked about how it's sort of a poorly developed area of law that in general courts look uh, very skeptically on prior restraints on speech um, and ordering people not to talk about certain things, not to say certain things. That It's very difficult to do that in a way that's constitutional. And I think implicitly there's some sort of balancing test here, right? It's something about the the importance of the of the free speech right that's being infringed upon versus the importance of the restriction in order to uh, ensure that the judicial system works in the manner that it's supposed to. And I assume that speech about court staff is something where it's relative you it would be relatively easy to show that the the balancing of interests, cuts toward restricting the speech, because unlike, you know, unlike the attorney general, who is a political figure, who is an elected official, 
um, who holds a lot of power over Donald Trump in, the, in this place. If you told Trump he couldn't talk about the attorney general, that would probably be infringing on a fairly important free speech right, whereas talking about the, the law clerk, not so much. Right. So you've got two levels. One is the, the legal and the other is the practical. On the legal level, yes, probably saying uh, that for the system to function, the court staff doesn't has to be not afraid for its safety uh, because of threats is persuasive. And the speech value of attacks on the court staff would probably be seen as low. And something just restricting attacks on court staff is going to be seen as narrowly tailored. More importantly, you know, these rules and exceptions are administered by judges. They're reviewed on appeal by judges. Those judges all have staffs and they all see this as a fairly grotesque violation of norms uh, such that they are not going to be giving it the sort of uh, exacting First Amendment scrutiny and perhaps we'd hope any gag order to be given. So if you want to uh, get all the judges mad at you, this is the way to do it. There's also been a lot of discussion about the fact that this is a bench trial. There is not a jury in Arthur Engeron's courtroom hearing this case. The fate of the Trump entities, the Trump organization, Donald Trump himself, is not before a jury uh, of his peers. And the coverage I've read about this has been confusing because there's been a bunch of sort of ha-ha, Donald Trump and his attorneys screwed up, they filled out this form wrong, they didn't ask for a jury. And then some of these news articles like down in paragraph nine will say, oh, by the way, it's not even clear whether he's entitled to a jury trial if he wanted one here. And I was having trouble getting clarity on that. Did he have a right to a jury trial if he wanted one, or was his fate necessarily going to be in the hands of the judge? He probably did not have a right to a jury trial. The way this came up is that, you know, the the standard forms for setting something for trial uh, will always have a box and say whether or not you're demanding a jury trial. Both parties here check the box for no. And during one of the first days of trial, the judge said, well, this is a bench trial because nobody asked for a jury trial. And the media picked that up. And what a blunder by Trump's lawyers. And, you know, who screwed up and who's going to get fired and all that. But that is probably just the judge being a judge kind of talking off the cuff uh, as opposed to being accurate. Josh, not every civil cause of action gets a jury trial or is entitled to it. The very rough distinction is things that derive from the common law, things like, you know, breach of contract and torts and stuff like that uh, are generally entitled to jury trials. Things that derive from the type of court that used to be called a court of equity, uh, things that have equitable remedies and are in the judge's discretion as opposed to governed by the common law, typically are not uh, required to have a jury trial. So statute like this, it often depends on what remedy is available under the statute. And since here, the remedies are traditional equitable remedies, uh, like disgorgement, which is just, you know, giving up that which you've gotten, the more reliable analysts seem to say that there is never an entitlement to a jury trial. A friend of the show, Mitch Eppner, uh, dug up a case that suggested that the remedy under the statute did not trigger the jury trial right. So this is probably, like you said, uh, the media getting a salacious, the the lawyer screwed up story and running with it without really recognizing it's It's mostly just about a story about how judges kind of talk out of their ass a substantial amount of the time that they're on the bench. Yeah, I mean, one other case that we've covered that was a, a case in 
an actual court of equity was the Elon Musk case where he was being sued and forced to acquire Twitter on the terms that he agreed to. That was in Delaware, which actually still has separate courts for law and equity. That was in the Chancery Court, which is the equity court. And there you just sit before the chancellor. Uh, there was there was no option there for a jury for Elon Musk either. Right. And, and that's very old school, harkens back to a time when you had separate law and equity courts. Uh, some courts are still closer to that than others. Probate courts are sort of notoriously closer to courts of equity than the law. Uh, but the, the distinction has gotten increasingly arcane and blurred over the years. And so... Trump is before this judge. He had no choice but to be before this judge. He is gravely antagonizing the judge. Um, and this wasn't the first thing that he did. His lawyers had already been sanctioned in this case, basically, for making what it is, excessively repetitive and, and superfluous arguments and wasting his time. Yeah, but he only sanctioned them $7,500. Well, and so that, that gets to a question that I have, which is, suppose Donald Trump violates this gag order. And I'm not sure that he will, given the narrow nature of the gag order. I don't know that he needs to attack the clerk again. Um, but suppose Donald Trump defies Judge Engeron as, as he's shown a willingness to do. What can the judge do about it? Well, uh, there are sanctions and there's even contempt. And uh, contempt can even, in theory, involve putting someone in jail as a punishment. Now, the procedures for that depend on whether something is a contempt in front of the judge, and that's like standing up and cursing at the judge or something like that in court, or whether it's something outside where the judge has to take evidence and there's a procedure. But uh, the bottom line is you can be jailed for contempt. That strikes me as unlikely, right? I mean, the, this is something we've discussed a lot with Judge Chutkin in the D.C. documents case that, you know, there are things that you could do to get more aggressive with regard to Donald Trump as a defendant, but they just they both create a lot of attention and they create issues for appeal. Is that less of an issue for a, a judge who is not a federal judge? No, I don't think it's less of an issue. I think you'll still see appellate things happening. And indeed, this week, Trump won a, a very minor issue on appeal. He tried to uh, overturn the judge's very catastrophic for him summary judgment order uh, from a couple of weeks ago that we talked about. The Court of Appeal said, well, we're not going to overturn the order, but we'll just stay the part of it that shuts down your businesses, that removes their licenses. We'll, we'll stay that for now. So um, that got him a little of what he wanted. Yeah, I, Josh, I think with this judge, like with Judge Chutkin, uh, they are too smart to get drawn too far into the circus. Uh, they know that Trump wants there to be this big, splashy confrontation uh, and they don't want to give it to him uh, because it doesn't really serve anything for them. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, uh, who's prosecuting this case, or I guess is the plaintiff in this case, you would say, since it's a civil case? Yes. She's been tweeting, or her, her office has been tweeting under her name, uh, for example, an infographic saying the art of the steel Mar-a-Lago uh, and showing that Donald Trump had asserted that the property was worth $739 million in 2018. Uh, at the same time, its appraised value by Palm Beach County was only $25 million. Um, and so calling that the art of the steel, I, I just found it sort of unusual to have a, you know, a government entity that is pursuing a case like this, pursuing it in the media in this, in, in this, you know, in this very, you know, social media optimized way at the same time that they're in court. Is that, is that normal? Is that proper? I mean, like it was an infographic even uh, right. to, to make your media narrative point. It is not common. 
it would probably be more of a problem with a jury trial, in which case I think it would probably be seen as inappropriate and be the sort of thing that would get the government scolded and maybe even sanctioned. For a bench trial, I mean, it's not clear to me what the legitimate purpose of it is. So there's kind of like, is it illegal? Not necessarily, no. Uh, is it appropriate? It's not clear to me how the government sort of lobbying for its own point of view on social media is appropriate or something we should want the government to be doing. Uh, I mean, they're making their point in court. The judge is responding to it and picking up on it. It's getting in the news. Uh, it's not clear to me what uh, the l legitimate point is of conducting a social media campaign about how good your case is. I also I just find this to be a funny talking point because Mar-a-Lago is not worth seven hundred thirty nine million dollars, but I also don't think it's worth twenty five million dollars. And I think most people who own property are familiar with the idea that your government appraised value of a piece of property might not be exactly what its market value is. Mar-a-Lago is like a 20 acre piece of property right on the ocean front in Palm Beach. And if it were developable, it would be enormously valuable. There's a very restrictive uh, zoning restriction on it. Basically, you can only operate it as a private club, and that tremendously impairs the value of it. Um, you can't sell it to someone to be their private residence. You can't sell it to someone to build, you know, a whole bunch of homes on on one acre or half acre lots. But it's still it's still twenty acres on the oceanfront in some of the most desirable part of Florida. And so it, it almost feels like you know the the government has a strong argument that Donald Trump's valuation for it was unreasonably high and based on false assumptions and all that sort of thing. I wouldn't lean too hard into the idea that the property is in fact worth twenty five million dollars. It's entirely plausible to me that you get someone to pay more than that. Yeah, and I, I don't know that this is the best example they could pick out out of all the things that have been talked about in the case. I mean, there are some, like, you know, when, you, when you're talking about Trump claiming his apartment is 30,000 square feet when it's 10, <laughs> I mean, that is uh, less ambiguous. Uh, you know, uh, the nature of reality and, uh, you know, the three dimensions of space in which we inhabit, those are more clear rules than valuation of property. So uh, not clear to me either why they chose these particular one as a persuasive one. Let's talk about the Florida criminal case, the, the case before Judge Eileen Cannon about the classified documents stored at Mar-a-Lago. Trump's attorneys have filed for a delay of this case. They want to delay it by six months. This case is supposed to go to trial in May of next year, in theory. They asked for a trial date that just happens to be a couple of weeks after the election in November. And their argument is basically that discovery has not happened fast enough. The government hasn't gotten them documents as fast as it promised to. They're, it's too impractical for them to review uh, the classified materials because of security clearances and where the facilities are for reviewing the documents and all this stuff. Judge Cannon has previously indicated some irritation around that specific issue and the manner in which the government is making those documents available. Um, and so on Friday, you got a, a very brief order from Judge Cannon basically saying, I'm going to pause the deadlines while I consider this. She hasn't moved the trial date yet. And then on Monday, uh, we got this motion from Jack Smith basically saying that they are misrepresenting how quick we've been on the discovery and the documents that came in late were for a specific reason to do with the difficulty of accessing Walt Nauta's cell phone. And we think a lot of those are duplicative. And they've seen most, most of the lawyers have seen most of the classified documents, et cetera, et cetera. Before we talk about Eileen Cannon and her oddity, what do you make of this argument itself? Is this the sort of thing that would impress a judge in general if you're asking for a case to be delayed? Well, yeah. I mean, frankly, uh, the May... 2024 trial date for this case has always been somewhat ambitious. 
uh, given the uh, complexity of the issues, all the classified document litigation that's going to have to go on, all the other pretrial litigation that's going to have to go on, it's always been faster than you might expect from a white-collar case in federal court of this complexity. Add on to that that uh, Trump is demonstrably... Uh, barring a big change, going to be in a very complex, serious trial starting in March in D.C. And we don't even know when the trial in Georgia uh, is going to be. Uh, So those are reasons that would reasonably move many judges to think, well, maybe this trial date is too ambitious. It is very hard to sort out what Trump is claiming and what the government's responding in terms of how fast discovery is going. But there's no question that it is a big, unusually complicated discovery process when you add in all the classified document handling and processing uh, rules and all the litigation that can flow from that. So I don't think it's a terribly unreasonable thing to do to question these dates. Since the scheduled trial date is seven months away from now, even if you think that date might not be viable, is it time yet to delay the case? Couldn't you sort of say, well, yeah, these are these are issues that are likely to cause this to take longer and we can revisit in December or January or whatever it is when, when we have a better sense of when a reasonable trial date is? Or is there a reason to say, we see all this complexity coming down the pike, let's move the trial date now? Well, I mean, as a defense lawyer, You want to be able to plan what you're going to be doing and what your schedule is. And when you've got a trial uh, with the same client in Washington, D.C., in front of an unsympathetic judge who's very much indicated that trial date is going to stick, then you kind of want to know sooner rather than later whether you're going to finish that trial and a couple of weeks later go into another trial in Florida because you have to have, you know, you have to have all the trains running on time. You've got to do all these things way in advance of the trial date to have them ready. And it makes a big difference to the the order of battle. Uh, so, I mean, it, you might hold off a couple of months, maybe. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in October now. The March trial date is quite close. The May trial date is not that far away in, in federal criminal terms. And yeah, you, you want to nail these things down so you know what you have to be doing. One case that is not going to be tying up Donald Trump for now is a civil lawsuit that he brought against Michael Cohen for all of Michael Cohen's perceived slights against Donald Trump. Uh, and Trump just moved to dismiss the case that he brought. Uh, And he moved to dismiss it without prejudice. So there was a dispute over scheduling of a deposition. Donald Trump was going to have to be deposed in the case. He was supposed to be deposed today as we're taping on Columbus Day. Um, And Trump didn't like that date for a number of reasons. I know a lot of people don't like to work on holidays. Uh, I guess he's supposed to be campaigning in New Hampshire today. He wanted the deposition to be later this week. Uh, the, The judge wouldn't move the deposition date. And so he dismissed the case. But his attorneys have been giving statements saying that this is a temporary delay in the case, that they don't have time right now to go to court against Michael Cohen, but they will refile the case later to vindicate Trump's claims against Michael Cohen. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to bring a suit and say, gee, this is inconvenient for me. I'll dismiss the suit and I'll bring it again later. Well, yeah, you're allowed to dismiss a suit. 
a judge has a certain amount of discretion to decide, no, if it's being dismissed, it's being dismissed with prejudice. So there are some factors that could lead the judge to do that. And sometimes a defendant will object to it being without prejudice. But generally, you're, you're the uh, master of your own suit and you can do that. Uh, the statute of limitations will begin running again. Uh, so you can run out of time to refile the suit and all sorts of other things can happen uh, to take up your time. But I think what's really going on here is, is you know, Trump files all these performative uh, gestures to the base, raise funds, harass my enemies types of lawsuits. And it's inevitable that sooner or later they're going to get to the point where they're going to be an inconvenience to him. Uh, as it is here when he's got a deposition that's about to drop. So that's the point at which you sort of say, okay, I've I've made my point. I've rattled this cage. I've gotten publicity. Uh, I'm going to get rid of it. So now that he's getting rid of it, I would be surprised if he refiles it. Speaking of the burdensome nature of litigation and its costliness, Donald Trump has all of these campaign accounts to draw on for his very prodigious legal bills. Not all of the people around him do. And two of Trump's associates, we've we've learned additional facts about their financial distress. Now, first of all, Mike Lindell, uh, his attorneys are seeking to withdraw from defamation cases in which he's a defendant. This is for claims about the supposed theft of the 2020 election. And Lindell has been agreeing with them, basically saying, yeah, I can't pay my attorneys. It's horrible. I've been financially ruined. That seems very awkward for Mike Lindell. And for his lawyers, because, uh, you know, they say, look, we're not some big city giant firm uh, with tons of money sitting around where we can get a couple million dollars in the hole and survive. You know, we're a smaller firm. And uh, that is a big problem for smaller firms. If uh, It's like the old saying that, uh, you know, if you, you owe the bank $1,000, the bank owns you. And if you owe the bank a million dollars, you own the bank. It, it's mm -hmm. a similar thing where <laughs> you... Uh, if a client gets too deep in the hole, uh, then all of a sudden your fate is very much tied to that client's fate and their ability ever to come up with the money to pay you. And sooner or later, though, you've got to make the decision to cut and run and to say, OK, well, I'm not going to throw any more money and time after this on someone who's not paying me. I've got to cut my losses. And that's what they seem to be doing here. And then Rudy Giuliani, uh, who's already being sued by not just an attorney of his, but an attorney who is a longtime close personal associate. So that's a sign of how far Giuliani has fallen. He now faces a tax lien against a condo that he owns in Florida. I mean, one, one thing we talked about a few weeks ago was Rudy Giuliani is unable to pay his lawyers, or is he unable to pay his lawyers? He has certain wealth, at least in the, we know that he owns certain real estate assets. He has a, an apartment in Manhattan on the market right now. Um, but one of the problems, if you're an attorney trying to get paid and you're relying on certain assets the client holds, is, for example, the IRS could come after those assets. Absolutely. And so the tax lien uh, in Florida encumbers one of his assets and signals to creditors the dangers that they're in here if they continue to help him without prompt payment. That may lead to further problems with him with more lawyers jumping ship. Uh, because, you know, one of the things lawyers will do is in this situation is say, well, if you can't pay me right now, well, let's take a trust deed on one of your properties uh, to secure this debt. But if the properties are getting liens on them and you can't do that, well, uh, then he's really starting to r run out of options. Remarkably, given all the financial difficulty that Rudy's having, 
because of these suits in which he is a defendant, he's now a plaintiff in a new lawsuit. He has sued Joe Biden and the Biden campaign in the state of New Hampshire for comments that Joe Biden made during the 2020 presidential campaign for saying that Rudy was a Russian pawn, that he was being fed Russian disinformation, that the Hunter Biden laptop material was Russian disinformation. Um, And so suing him for defamation in the state of New Hampshire. And so first of all, I guess New Hampshire, you can sue for defamation there longer than in other states? Yeah, it's got a unusually, some would say, ludicrously long statute of limitations for defamation, three years. California, for instance, is a year. And that's meaningful uh, just because of, I mean, so he can sue uh, over things that Joe Biden said during the debates leading up to the 2020 election, which was, you know, a long time ago. Uh, I would note, by the way, that none of the debates happened in New Hampshire. The debates were in Ohio and Tennessee. Right. But it hurt his reputation in New Hampshire, I believe, Josh, is the the theory here, uh, being accused of being a a Russian pawn. So this is a fairly typical modern political defamation suit. It has all the hallmarks of the things we've been talking about. It's chock full of, you know, Joe Biden has a long string of dishonest statements as a politician and lies and calumnies against people. And it goes through all the greatest hits of things that Biden says that, uh, you know, that, that they think were plagiarized or or lies or this type of thing. And finally getting around to this debate where Joe's doing his, hey, man, uh, you know, so forth and, and claiming that uh, a lot of the stuff coming out is uh, Russian disinformation about the, the so-called uh, Hunter Biden laptop. This very much offends Rudy because the Russians were not the source of the laptop disinformation. Rudy was the source. <laughs> <laughs> of the uh, laptop disinformation. That's an uh, original source stuff right there. Um, well, I mean, I, not that it's the key point here, but the, the extent to which the content of the so-called laptop is disinformation, I, I, it's not clear that the laptop is disinformation as such. It's not clear that it's a laptop. Right. I, I don't know that this <laughs> matters legally in this lawsuit. No, it it doesn't. But I would I would just I would just note that like you know the, the information that you don't like or that you don't think is relevant or that came from a shady source is is can often be disinformation, but is not necessary. Well, I would say I would put it this way: the large amount of what is said about the so-called laptop is bullshit. Sure. Um, okay. Fair. So. You know, he's suing Joe Biden and the Biden campaign and the Biden campaign entities uh, for defamation for saying these things that he was a dupe of the Russians. It's very much, though, a sort of, first of all, a fundraising uh, complaint. Second of all, a base pleasing complaint. I think it's a strategic complaint that allows him to get discovery and put pressure in the same way that like Hunter Biden's lawsuit against him over uh, the so-called laptop or external hard drive or whatever it is. They're all just doing these performative, strategic and tactical complaints against each other. It's funny you mentioned fundraising. It appears that there is a Rudy legal defense fund that you can give to as a member of the public. I don't I mean, I'm looking at this website. I, it's the sort of thing where I would, you know, I would, I would check around hard to figure out if the money's actually going to Rudy or if it's, you know, some operative who's going to spend it fixing up his yacht or whatever, if you give to the legal defense fund. Because I was a little skeptical about the the PR value for Rudy, the extent to which this actually causes anyone to give to his legal defense fund. Um, I mean, I think that's that's part of the problem for various associates of Donald Trump, that there's a, a deep well of support out there in the country for Donald Trump. 
that he can use financially for various uh, objectives, including protecting himself in lawsuits. It's not clear that that has worked so well for people who have worked for Donald Trump. That's true, although there's also a deep well of support for a lot of these Trumpist narratives, uh, like how, you know, there's this corrupt Biden crime family and uh, sure. the, the the laptop has all the proof. And uh, that's probably a source of interest for people. Yeah, it's just not clear to me how that translates to helping Rudy Giuliani keep his Florida condo from the IRS. Um, well, at this point, he's in a pretty dark place and maybe pretty much anything would help. Maybe he's just hoping someone will put him up at a Motel 6 in New Hampshire for a while or, or something like that. So the statements at issue in this lawsuit, the claims that what Biden said in the debate were defamation. I mean, we, we talked some about the like there are factual disputes about the provenance and the authenticity of stuff on the laptop and that sort of thing. Does any of that matter for this lawsuit or any of the statements that Joe Biden made here that relate to Rudy Giuliani? Are they provably false statements of fact that could have damaged his reputation? I I think that's the defense. And unfortunately, New Hampshire does not have a good anti-slap statute. Uh, But I think the defense is that this is political rhetoric, hyperbole, exaggeration, you know, purple prose, not consumed as literal fact, can't be understood as literal fact because uh, just the terms being used aren't subject to precise definition. And right. that, when you say Rudy Giuliani is being used as a Russian pawn, that's not a statement where the court is going to do fact finding and figure out whether Rudy Giuliani is a Russian pawn or not. That's an opinion. Right. It's in a political debate. I mean, it's in the specific context where you most expect exaggerated political rhetoric and hyperbole. So I think he has a a very good argument, at least in the long term, that this is not a provably false statement of fact, therefore not defamation. I don't know if he gets uh, rid of the case on a motion to dismiss, but I think it's very defensible in the long term. I was amused to see who's representing Rudy in this case. I, you know, I assume you wouldn't take Rudy as a client right now. How, how, what kind of fee deposit would you need for that? Uh, well, uh, not just what kind of fee deposit, but in what form that the IRS can't get. I understand gold right. bars are popular right now. <laughs> I might think about that. So he has two attorneys. Uh, one of them is William O'Brien, uh, unless it's someone else with precisely the same middle initial, William L. O'Brien, uh, is the former speaker of the New Hampshire House of Representatives uh, position that he held from 2010 to 2012. Uh, so he has a, a political figure of some sort representing him. And then he has a guy named Anthony Diamond, who's who's I mean, please don't email him. But uh, we're talking about his email address because it's interesting what the address is. It's biker 45 Lou is his handle. Some people care about the law, Josh, and not about all these bells and whistles. <laughs> yeah. And he's not even a New Hampshire attorney, so he needs a Pro Hoc Vice uh, admission. I guess maybe that's that's what William O'Brien is doing. He's being local counsel. Right. If you've got the former Speaker uh, of the House there. Well, you know, as people know, New Hampshire has always been sort of a weird political environment. Um, <laughs> has gotten increasingly so, particularly as the the remnants of the Libertarian Party has gotten very influential there with their sort of proud boy leanings. Uh, so, yeah, it's not very surprising he could find people to to support something nutty like this in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire House of Representatives has 400 members for approximately 1.2 million residents. So every 2,000 and change New Hampshireites get their own rep. So you can you can put any kind of jackass in the New Hampshire House of Representatives, although being the Speaker of the House is normally a more substantive position than than merely being one of 400 members of that House. They need a certain amount of supervision, Josh, as I'll say. (laughs) 
there's a couple other defamation suits uh, that are new that we should talk about. One is against Elon Musk. It's been brought by Benjamin Brody, who is a college student, and it's been brought by Mark Bankston, who is also an attorney for plaintiffs in the Alex Jones defamation lawsuits. And the lawsuit is over. Uh, there, there was some fight between uh, uh, two different white nationalist groups in Portland, and some people got their masks pulled off. And then there's this conspiracy theory about these people are actually agitators or government operatives or feds or whatever. And so they have pictures of these two people and some idiots on the Internet decide, hey, this kind of looks like this college student from California, Benjamin Brody. And they put pictures of them up together. And Benjamin Brody has like credit card receipts and various other things showing that he was not in Portland, that he was in California where he lives and attends school uh, at the time uh, that this brawl occurred. But anyway, this rumor is going around on Twitter saying that he is a a fake white nationalist who was sent there uh, by the government to create this false flag. And Elon Musk responded to a couple of people posting about this, saying things like, you know, interesting. Um, And then one post he makes in response to Zero Hedge, which is a conspiracy account, where the he's sharing a Zero Hedge article alleging that this unmasked fake white supremacist is this man, Benjamin Brody from California. Elon Musk responds to this and says, looks like one is a college student who wants to join the government. And he says, a probable false flag situation. And so now they've sued Elon Musk, basically saying that it was defamatory to accuse Benjamin Brody of being a Fed perpetuating a false flag. And obviously this is terrible behavior, but it it wasn't clear to me that this that any of this is actually actionable. Right. So it is terrible behavior and it's, it's sort of really dumb on its face. I mean, the the FBI uh, will absolutely do false flags, but they will not use a, a skinny junior political science major who thinks maybe he wants to work in government, uh, who looks like every other skinny junior political science major who said that he wanted to work in government. <laughs> The stuff that Musk said initially reacting to other people's posts were just sort of like, like you said, huh, interesting. And and so it could not really be taken as uh, an assertion of fact, a provably false assertion of fact. Generally, other people's content you're not responsible for. So everyone's familiar with Section 230, which is the part of the law that says that you know, Twitter, uh, Facebook aren't responsible for uh, what we put on there. But the, the corollary to that is that we're not responsible for what other people put on Facebook or Twitter, even if we retweet it or, or repeat it or react to it. We're not responsible for that person's content. The one that's closer is the one where Musk says, uh, kind of endorses the content of the the nutty Zero Hedge article saying, it looks like this one is a college student. But again, he's simply basically saying, it looks like based on this article, I understand that, which is also difficult to take as a provably false statement of fact, because it's, it's basically saying, I understand from this article that you can see right there, it's, it's like an opinion based on disclosed facts. So it, right. it's not that strong. And an opinion on disclosed fa- based on disclosed facts cannot be defamatory, even if the opinion is an idiotic one to draw from the facts that have been disclosed. Yeah. So a, a, an opinion, even if completely nuts, uh, is not defamatory. If it implies false facts or sometimes it relies on false facts, it can be defamatory. Here, I think he's got an uphill battle on this. The, the complaint does a masterful job of 
uh, laying out all the times that Elon Musk has flailed around on Twitter, wildly accusing people of being pedophiles and sucking up to, to Nazis and, and generally acting like an idiot and uh, kind of puts it in that context as someone who's extremely reckless uh, with what he does on Twitter. And if that were the issue, I think it would be effective, but I don't think it is. I think the issue is, is this a statement of fact by Elon Musk or is this just Elon Musk reacting to other people's content on Twitter? I mean, that that even gets back to one of the oldies uh, some years ago before Elon Musk owned Twitter when he accused that cave diver guy who was involved in rescuing those Thai boys from that cave, uh, called him a uh, pedo guy. Right. And the guy sued him. And the finding was that basically pedophile was a term of abuse um, and an insult and not a literal accusation that he was having sex with children. Right. I mean, we don't uh, know. And therefore, we, yeah. It was a jury decision. We don't know exactly what the jury thought, but that was pretty clearly the upshot, that it was just a trading insult. This is a, a little different because, you know, that was a fit of uh, moodiness and sensitivity by Musk at being mildly criticized. And this is more just him saying stupid things about news events. Uh, but yeah. Again, you, it, Twitter is known for saying people say stupid things, unguarded things. You don't take things said there completely literally, which is why I think it's uphill battle to show that these are provably false statements of fact. And then a third new defamation suit this week brought by Mark Andrews against Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, the, the right wing commentator who uh, made the film 2000 Mules, which alleges theft of the 2020 election. Mark Andrews is a voter in the state of Georgia who delivered some absentee ballots, not just for himself, but for his family for the to vote in the 2020 election. And there's video footage of him in this movie in which he's accused of being one of these so-called mules delivering you know, fake illegal ballots for the election, um, which he did not do. And so he's suing for defamation. And, and one, I guess one of the, the issues in this case is whether they really identified him because they, they blurred out his image. Right. They do blur the movie, his image. But, um, then they, you know, you. But then people still figured out who he was. They did. And the argument is they anticipated he, he would. I mean, defamation has to be over concerning the plaintiff. You have to. So it has to identify them in some way. But if you can show that people understood who it was about, then you can potentially uh, make a case. And this is a guy who says that his family was subject to massive harassment because they got film of him, you know, just dropping off his family's ballots, blurred out his face and then reran the tape like it's, you know, like it's the the fucking Bigfoot tape or something. Uh, <laughs> some some horrifying big scandal uh, overturning the election system in America, which it wasn't. And so a judge just ruled on this cut out some of it, some of the some civil rights claims uh, rejected because a lot of the theory here is not defamation, but uh, basically interference with his right to vote, uh, but let crucial parts of the case uh, survive and basically indicated that it's you know barely disputable that false statements of fact were made. And, and it is basically a propaganda film. So it's, it's not that surprising that that wouldn't be the hard part, uh, showing that it had false statements of fact. I, just to zoom out on this, it really does seem like the lies that have been told about the 2020 election and the litigation that has ensued from that, I mean, we're, we're starting to see that it's really... It's really enacting a serious punishment on people who are not Donald Trump who were involved in that in a lot of cases. I mean, we, you know, the, the, the enormous settlement that was paid by Fox News Channel, it really does seem like a lot of these people 
have gotten or are on track toward getting a really serious comeuppance for their behavior. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're not Donald Trump, you don't get to be Teflon. Uh, if you carry his water and do stupid things for him, uh, you may be successfully sued uh, for defamation. You might find yourself sued for RICO in Georgia. Uh, you never know what's going to happen to you. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, gosh, that's a real shame. Let's leave it on, on Rico and Georgia this week, actually, because the, there's an update on that case. Remember, originally there were 19 defendants in this case. A couple of them are getting their speedy trial early. One of them, Scott Hall, who was involved in the sub part of the case to do with the breach of voting machines in Coffee County in rural Georgia, he's pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate. And so he's he's pleaded to some misdemeanors and he's the likely to not to not even get a, any jail time related to this. How much does it matter if he's cooperating for the other defendants? Uh, well, he seems to be a small player that's, you know, reflected in five misdemeanors and a recommendation for for probation. But even small players can help build a case. Uh, you flip the small player to flip the medium player and, and so on up the chain. And you also get different types of evidence. So uh, the government likes to see it have, so, you know, we've got statements from the defendant. We've got testimony from one of their co-conspirators. We've got documents. It adds to the variety of the types of evidence you have that can make a very effective presentation. So he's probably not someone who reaches all the way to the top. He probably wasn't on the phone with Donald Trump, but he may be able to point them to other evidence that they hadn't noticed or hadn't understood the uh, significance of it yet. And he may, he'll certainly be able to incriminate at least some of the other people in that particular uh, sub-conspiracy in the case. Uh, let's leave it there for this week. Ken, thank you so much for joining me on the holiday when Donald Trump was unwilling to work, but you were. <laughs> thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>